Yes, so Cole, what you just mentioned was um, something that a lot of students don't know anything about, but it winds up being uh, kind of important. And that is, it's not necessarily the, uh, uh, the value of the, let us say, the point of information or the point of wisdom or whatever. Uh, the value of it uh, has to be delivered in a way that shows the value of it. And that's very, very difficult to do in, uh, in print. This is one of the reasons why uh, uh, books have illustrations, especially children's books, because it's making a point. And uh, it's very difficult uh, to have um, an illustration of the kinds of things that we're talking about inside the mind. So this is one of the reasons why um, the Dhamma uh, is, is known to be or thought to be or in the, um, uh, the language of uh, a transmission or a um, uh, change, uh, change of lineage or joining a lineage or something like that. Uh, because uh, from uh, long, long experience of 2,500 years, uh, the Sangha has come to understand that the, the books don't convey what needs to be conveyed, that uh, if there is anything, it's the transmission is the inspiration or lighting someone's fire or uh, um, the transmission of enthusiasm. And enthusiasm is very difficult to transmit in a book. Oh, yeah. That, in fact, I've got a couple of friends that are working on a project to do just that, because almost all of the Dhamma books that are available to the Western public, uh, they don't go after that uh, that inspiration or that uh, transmission. What they go after is, in fact, is a step-by-step -step, uh, instruction manual. <laughs> and that instruction manual, uh, why the, where the student uh, can get a good instruction. And in fact, over the course of years, someone could come uh, let us say, to a new book that they've never seen before, like uh, the TMI, and check off everything in that book and say, yeah, right, I understand that, right, yeah, I got that right. But the beginning student, when they read that book, it doesn't give them uh, that, that same correct information that an old wise one would recognize as correct. Mm -hmm. But the information is not presented in a way nor can it ever be in a book that's going to give that transmission. And that gives another idea uh, to it, and that is, is that, well, I'll go ahead and, and give the example. The example is, is that a couple of days ago here in Thailand was uh, what they call Khao Panza. This is the beginning of the range retreat. This is a point of ceremonial time. And so on Thai television, they're going to have one of those ceremonies. And the one that, that I saw was at uh, Wat Pha Kiao 
in, in Bangkok with all the glitter and all the gold and all the monks and uh, the chanting and everything. But then it was time for the Dhamma teaching. They always have a Dhamma talk. And I don't know, I need in fact to research this because it's interesting. I don't know who it was that gave the talk. But I had to get close to the television screen to even see if his lips were moving. Because otherwise he was just, just sitting there while um, uh, a drone talk was being performed and that I have seen other monks and I've actually heard of Westerners talk about uh, but what that monk had to say was very interesting but he was very dry okay speaking speaking in monotone and that um, so another reddit person says oh yeah that's the style of the monks that all the monks uh, or teachers of the Dhamma they, they try to sit there and uh, more or less while they're giving a dog, demonstrate that they're peaceful and they're calm, right? Well, beginner students don't need peaceful and calm as a, um, an energizer or as an, an enthusiasm builder. That what we need is to, to build enthusiasm for the Dhamma. And, um, there are suttas where the Buddha himself says, uh, uh, and the suttas talk about that the Buddha exhorted the monks. He roused them up. He gave them a rousing uh, uh, talk to get them curious and interested and, and uh, uh, gung-ho with the Dhamma. And again, that kind of thing is very difficult to deliver in a book. Perhaps the only thing that you can do is tell a story about one teacher and one student to where the teacher was able to rouse the students up, and that would be inspirational. Uh, but <clears throat> historically, the Dhamma uh, in, within the Sangha has always been taught on a one-on-one -on -one basis. The student and the teacher uh, know each other, and that the, the student... Um, uh, and the teacher form a relationship that over time becomes much more of a friendship rather than a student. Uh, you see, in the West, they have that, that structure of teacher and student or psychologist and, their, uh, uh, and uh, client or doctor and uh, patient, uh, accountant and... and uh, um, uh, client, lawyers and clients, we always have this structure built in. And so that structure that's built there is actually built up more in the mind of the student than it is of the teacher, because he's already come through that process with his own teacher to come up to that. Now, I really hold Achan Po in very, very high regard. But I wouldn't call him my teacher anymore. He's a, he's a friend. He's a marvelous human being. But uh, um, uh, the, the instruction for the Dhamma had, uh, was finished years and years ago. But now what his job is, he sees, is uh, the way that it looks, is to exhort, to, uh, uh, to, to push. For instance, without Achan Po's encouragement, 
I wouldn't be doing these things on the internet. Especially now that I'm spending a lot of time on the internet, as many as four, five, six hours a day. Um, and at one time, uh, I think the high mark was 10 students in one day. The next day I could hardly talk. <laughs> Uh, but I do that for two reasons. One is just because of the, uh, the transmission through the lineage that I have gotten something from Achan Tov that's so valuable to me that it's worth sharing. And they also teach it from the concept that um, ne never mind the Buddha Dhamma, just Dhamma in general, or the life that we live. We live in an environment that requires things of us. If we do those things that are absolutely required from us, then uh, we will suffer a whole lot less. And that if we're determined not to do the things that are required from us, it may in fact kill us. For instance, not eating. That's the requirement. And so we have to do our duty, we have to eat to keep the body going, even to the point of breathing, too. That if we don't do the breathing, then, um, and the, the human body itself kind of wants to shut down on breathing, because the, uh, that part of the brain in the back, the reptilian brain, is very conservative. And so part of the teaching of the Buddha is, let's, uh, if we have that requirement that we've got to breathe anyway, why do a haphazard, uh, a lazy job of it? Why not do it correctly? So let's do the breathing correctly. So that's in fact a lot of what the actual teachings of the Buddha uh, is, is that we already have all of these requirements. And it's because we're not meeting our requirements that we wind up in suffering. Another way of stating that is, here is reality. If you live according to reality, you can have a good life. But if you decide that reality is not the way you want it, and you try to make it some other way, you're going to wind up harming yourself doing that. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, just in a normal level, everyone has duties to the Dhamma. But once we understand the teachings of the Buddha and the Buddha Dhamma, now because we have learned to become free from the suffering, because we are in fact uh, going according to uh, the Dhamma and, and doing our duty according to the Dhamma, we recognize that part of that duty is to spread this good news, to tell others. And yet, um, Within the context of the Buddha, it doesn't proselyze, not the way that Christianity does. There is no value in um, uh, teaching the Dhamma uh, in the sense of getting a, a bigger mansion in heaven because you brought a lot of people to Buddhism. Rather, the value is that when one teaches the Dhamma and shares the Dhamma, that means that we reinforce it, we put it deeper. When we tell other people, we want to make sure that we're telling the right thing. And so teachers wind up improving their own Dhamma skills by being able to teach. 
that in fact the steps go along with, the first is, is that we hear the Dhamma, and then we become curious, and then we, uh, we want to get more Dhamma, we ask questions about it, we become engaged with it, we become friends with people, we talk to people like that, and then eventually we come to the state of uh, sharing the Dhamma with our friends, and then higher than that, we become a teacher. Now that, that, uh, that teaching quality is just part of the steps along the way of learning the Dhamma. So we learn the Dhamma by living it. Okay, so this is, this is the uh, uh, getting back to that point of um, the relationship between the student and the teacher becomes a becomes a relationship of friendship as the student learns more of the Dhamma. And another quality of that, which is uh, really important, especially along with the lines of where we've already started, is, is that the real teaching is to learn to become friends with everything. Become friends with our own hindrances to become friends with our feelings, to become friends with the environment that we live in, and then also to become friends with each other, especially the people that we would normally not want to be friends with or not get along with. We can learn to get along with anybody. It doesn't matter if we disagree about everything. That we're, we still have a lot of things in common. And so, uh, at one time, Ananda went to the Buddha after he had heard something from Sarakuta, and Ananda asked the Buddha, um, Sarakuta says that, um, that friendship is half the teaching of the, of the Dharma. And the Buddha says, oh no, that's not correct. That in fact, friendship is 100% of the Dharma. Because every step along the way of one's learning the Dhamma is, is to break down our discord and our disagreements and start becoming friendly with what is there. Now, a lot of students think I can do that immediately. Oh, I'll just accept everything. Well, we're generally not in a place of acceptance of everything like that that we, um, in fact, have been living our whole lives being taught by society uh, to reject, to reject things, uh, uh, to do what you're told to do, but to feel bad about it. That is, that we don't teach our children to enjoy learning, we teach them to learn. And the enjoyment then becomes optional, and most students don't bother to, uh, so they don't see anybody else. So they. Uh, it's unusual then for a child to really enjoy uh, learning, especially the stuff that's designed to him to learn. It's almost like you've got to get into graduate school before you can have fun learning. And many in graduate school, they don't ever learn to have fun with it anyway. I guess there's only a few of us that get really, I mean, um, back in the old days, when computers were very hard to come by and they were extremely expensive, the graduate students would, uh, in some cases like I was, I, 
I actually got as my office the computer room that held a uh, PDP-15, and that that was my computer. I mean, that was kind of, so I had a huge toy, a room full of computer, actually. <laughs> and I guess the same way is true with astrology, that finally the graduate students get to the telescope. To have their own time with the telescope, you know, and so uh, this is the kind of play that we're looking at. Uh, but unfortunately, most of us spend our lives not having fun with our life. And yet the Buddha spent a lot of his time exhorting his students that, that uh, the Dhamma does not bring one to a dead, dull monotone unless that's what you think that it should be doing, that in fact, if anything, the Dhamma, uh, if we talked about it like this, the Dhamma would be something that would make you alive, vibrantly alive, full of life, full of joy. And yet most of the people, when you see about, when they think about meditation, they think of somebody squatting on the floor, being very quiet, and, uh, um, so then that becomes sort of the ideal or the role model of thinking that uh, uh, the good Dharma teachers are the ones who um, uh, are monotone, drone, and they drone on with the Dhamma, they all talk like this just over and over and that kind of speaking without any real joy or life. So when you bring up that topic that you did about, ah, I understand what you mean, because you're putting that aha. I see you, Mara. That that aha expression or that quality of taking joy in seeing the hindrances is something that very few people um, experience through a book. It's hard to get that quality to, to transmit. Um, the other quality is uh, to, to get the student to understand the depth of the hindrances. But we can look at it from the sense of anything that will prevent you from being happy and joyful, uh, vibrantly alive, that would be called a hindrance. Mm -hmm. And so the hindrances would be then anything that will keep us basically from being vibrantly alive. Most likely will, uh, the important point would be the quality of be here now. Being in this present moment, because the hindrances will take us to the past. Basically, we'll um, think of something that needs to be done. Why do we think about things that need to be done? Because we have a basic internal uh, sort of uh, yucky feeling down there someplace that tells us that all this yucky feeling is trying to tell us we need to do something. We don't quite know what it is, but we know that we need to do something. When that yucky kind of little feeling grows, it can grow into anxiety or even stress. But at a very, very low level, that, that uh, uh, point of, of unsatisfactoriness keeps the mind spinning. It keeps it... Um, on a journey, Goenkaji uh, uh, called it um, the wandering mind. 
some call it, uh, in fact, this is an old one. I thought it was quite modern, but in fact, it's many, many centuries years old, uh, calling it the monkey mind, that the monkey is just jumping from tree to tree or from topic to topic to topic. Okay, so the, that's the hindrance. In that's actually the manifestation of the hindrance is the jumping around. So the first thing that we have to do is we have to get that monkey mind uh, corralled. Got to get it to where, uh, yeah, it's jumping around. It's still jumping around, but it's not jumping around wildly so that we lose track of it, that it goes way off someplace, that it's jumping way over there in those trees. But we have to be able to sort of put a, a leash on it. Maybe a long lead. Uh, the Buddha used two examples in that regard. Uh, one was tethering a horse, and uh, they tethered the horse with a bridle, but uh, they didn't even in the time of the Buddha. But with the elephant training, they tether the elephant with the left hind leg. But the elephants, especially the bigger that they get, uh, the elephant can find a stance so he can free his left hind leg and then he'll swing it back and forth to the limits uh, of um, uh, the movement, which then begins to weaken the vines and the cords and uh, uh, the elephant can get loose that way. All right? And in the time of the Buddha, that was the only thing to do is to tether the animal and wait for it to get free. Then you go catch it again, and then you bring it back and you tether it again over and over and over again. And during the night, the, the elephant would swing his leg back and forth, break the tether. But after a few times of getting caught over and over and over again and brought back and being tethered, the elephant finally settles down so he doesn't try to escape. This is the analogy that the Buddha uses for one's own mind, that we need to tether it, and then it will escape, and then it'll tether it again, and then it will escape. There's another point about that uh, animal training, and that is, is that if they tether that uh, elephant, and he uh, uh, frees himself and wanders away, where do you think the elephant goes to? He goes home. <laughs> he goes back to the place that's familiar. He goes back looking for his buddies. He goes back to the watering hole. So wherever the, uh, 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 the trainers will catch that elephant, when he runs away, they know exactly where to go to find him. And they catch him again, and they bring him back, and they tether him again. Okay. This is then the analogy that we're going to, uh, to use with uh, the training of Anapanasati. And you can see that the breathing then is the tether, that we're going to tether the mind to the breathing, and then the mind is going to shake loose and then wander away again into, uh, uh, let us say, to follow his heart, to follow his restlessness, to follow his dream, and to just go around, 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 around. And that going around is what we uh, <clears throat> call as the hindrance of restlessness. And we could even call it worry. 
that we get worried about things. And, and a worry means that we're kind of in a tight little circle to where restless in general means that the mind will just wander off anywhere. So, we begin to understand where the mind goes. If we keep bringing it back over and over and over again, we can have a glimpse of, well, where has it been? And we begin to understand the nature of these hindrances because we're able to pull the mind out of them. Now, this is a different practice than some people do. In fact, this is one of the big mistakes I think that Westerners make. Um, in the, in the, the Mahasi method, they have the concept of noting and that they start the student with noting the rising and the falling and the touching and the sitting. Well, that's good so far. The rising and the falling is the rising and the falling of the breath. So we begin to watch the breath. The touching then means to become aware of the body in the sense of everything that touches you. To begin to wake up the body. To begin, we begin to understand what the, feel, what the face feels like from the inside. Our culture is much more concerned with what the face looks like from the outside, hence mirrors. But what does the face feel like from the inside? That's when we can get the touch and the senses and all of that. The same thing with the body. So Goenka talks about the touch of the cloth, the rising and the falling, uh, the movement of the body, even to the point of the shoulders will go up and down a little bit. So we uh, practice this um, body breathing meditation as an anchor to bring us back to the here now because we can see this breath but it's hard to see or watch or monitor a breath we had a year ago in fact it's hard to remember any particular breath in your past maybe you remember when you were almost drowning and somebody uh, uh, pulled you out and you can get that deep breath you might remember one like that but generally we're not going to remember anything about the breathing so everything that we do with breathing has to do with the breathing that we're doing right now. That's the important quality is because this mindfulness of breathing immediately brings us back to the here now. So this is part of the noting, the rising, the falling, the touching, and also the sitting. What is our posture? Is our back straight? We don't need to open our eyes to see that kind of stuff. When you're laying down in bed, you know the posture. If you just think about what's the posture of the body, you know the posture of the body. You don't have to take a photo or look at what the with the eyes. You know in, inside. So this is the rising, falling, touching, and the sitting is the knowing of the body's posture. And so this is uh, the Mahasi method that gets people started with the noting. But the rising and the falling is, is in is kind of changing, it's in constant flux, but we still kind of watch the body, we watch the body uh, breathing, we watch the body sensations and whatnot. But when it comes time to noting the mind, the right way to note is like we were talking about before, aha, I see you, I see you, Hendricks. Okay, and by that seeing of the hindrance, we're actually beginning to pull ourselves out of that hindrance. In fact, I see, uh -huh, I see you, Myra. It's not Myra. It's seeing it. 
And that also has the quality of disassociation in the sense that we're coming out of it. So let us uh, use some uh, fairly uh, hardcore examples of a hindrance. It would be anger. When someone's angry, then they say, I am angry, or I'm pissed off, or I'm frustrated, or the words that they have almost always has to do with me or I. But now we're looking, aha, I see you, Myra, is more of like, uh, this is um, the anger, but I am not the anger. That anger and emotions and even our thoughts overwhelm us so that we cannot tell the difference between the thoughts and the feelings versus who we really are. And so when we're lost in thought, we think that we're the thought. When we're lost in feelings, we think we're the feeling. But in fact, feelings come and go. So the example would be that uh, if, if this is me, and this is anger, then we see it like this. In the sense of, I'm angry, means anger has captured me. Right? And now the mind goes wandering off with that anger and everywhere and goes anywhere until we say, aha, I see you. And when we do that, we disassociate. We pull out and we say, aha, I see you. I see the anger. I am not the anger now. I am not that hindrance. Whatever the hindrance is, I am not the hindrance. I see the hindrance. This is the way to practice. Yet most students will do the other way. They call it noting, and they will note the hindrance, but they don't come out of the hindrance. And so they'll note it again. And so a lot of students have the idea of insight has to do with mucking around in the jungle and finding various um, animals there. And that they get insight from finding all of these dangerous animals that they have when they're mucking around in their own sewer or their own jungle. As a side point, there was a uh, television series at one time uh, about a... Um, uh, actually, it, he, he was uh, obsessive-compulsive behavior, but he was a, um, a detective sort of like a modern-day um, uh, Sherlock Holmes, and he was quite brilliant at it. So the police kept wanting to use him as a great detective, but they didn't want him on the police force because he was nuts. And the theme song uh, that they had was it was a jungle out there. And when I would hear that, that song, I would say, oh, no, oh, no, it's not a jungle out there. The jungle is in here. This is where the jungle is. And so when the students are going around finding uh, their uh, uh, mucking around in their jungle, they have a lot of different insights. A lot of students talk about it going deep, okay? Going deep into meditation. You've probably heard that before, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. What we're doing here with Anapanasati is not going deep. It's not going deep. Is, is learning how to stay out of the jungle. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's coming into the open space. 
it's coming into a state of, of freedom. And so we have to remember to stay out of the jungle. We don't want to go do our research in the jungle. We want to do our research of the jungle from outside the jungle. An example of that is you would want to expect a bear trap and get to know it very well, but you don't want to have it. You don't want to have your leg in it, trapped in that bear trap while you're inspecting the bear trap. You can inspect mm -hmm. that bear trap without having your leg in it. <laughs> this is an important part for students to understand that they have to come out of the hindrances. They can't not stay in the hindrances and inspect them from there. So it's almost like that uh, there's a waking up process that is actually a process that has some distinctions to it. An example is that when we first wake up in the morning, we wake up, we know we're awake, we know the body's position, we know the environment, we know that we're in the bed, we can feel the touch of the cloth and all of that with the uh, sheets and everything. But we're not woken up yet, not completely. The, the real waking up is the getting up out of the bed. And so we need to wake up enough in our meditation, not just to wake up enough to see the hindrances. We've got to wake up enough to get out of them, to get out of bed. Mm -hmm. The example that I use is uh, uh, most militaries have an indoctrination that is uh, referred to as boot camp. And it'll be about six weeks of training. And uh, not every morning, but on occasion, uh, the drill instructor, the sergeant, will come banging on the wall with his baton, yelling at the top of his voice about five minutes before reveille. And when he comes in, what happens? The whole dormitory, everybody in that dorm jumps out of bed and stands at attention, right? Yeah? Mm -hmm. We've seen movies of this, or if you've been doing it yourself, you know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, been there, done that. You do not roll over and say, okay, five more minutes and hit the zoom or the, uh, uh, the snooze alarm. But most of us, when we wake up in the morning, we wake up drowsy. And we say, okay, another five minutes. Or maybe we have it set so that every five minutes we just touch the snooze alarm and we'll wait 30 minutes to sleep. But then we'd eventually get out of bed. So now my question is, how, how long are we going to uh, be awake to the hindrances before we actually take the effort to get out of it, to get out of the bed that we're in? Mm -hmm. Uh, now, many people, when I use the word bed, we think about it as uh, 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 comfortable, a bed of roses or whatever, but there's also the concept that you made this bed, you've got to lie in it. Okay, that's the point that we're making. No, you might have made this bed, but don't you think it's time you got out of it now? <laughs> uh, so, question there. Um, okay. Like... Uh, let's say like a really common thing, you know, part of your your back starts hurting, right? Or you have a inclination, you have a feeling of anger, like you have an inclination to get up because you're feeling restless. Like, like, how do you like? Commonly, what'll happen is I'll have that feeling and I'll just keep sort of acknowledging it and then returning to the breath or whatever. But like, 
that cycle of sort of breaking it, right? Like not getting involved in it, like fusing with it, sort of like how you put it. Um, like how do you like how do you sort of step out of the jungle? Uh, if you catch my drift. Um, you're asking a question that comes generally through, um, let us say, a bit more experience from a meditator. Uh, especially if they're practicing something um, that requires them to sit still for long periods of time because there are many, many practices that do that kind of thing. In fact, many of them know that getting the students sit for a long time, that two things happen. One is the mind gets tired, and number two, the body gets tired. So that means that the body is going to have aches and pains, and so the, the teacher of this kind of meditation will say it's time to wake up and start doing the vipassana of looking at the pain. In Thailand, especially with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, they, they don't sit so long in the retreats. They don't sit for an hour, they sit only 30 minutes. Another point is, is that if there is any bodily pain in these, in these sitting sessions, that there's a number of things that we could do physically about it. One would be to straighten the back, because normally back pain is because we're not sitting up straight. Another one is, and you can see this, in the sense that you can see that the gravity is going to pull my hand straight down, right? But if my body is leaning like this, then the gravity is not going to be pulling it down like this. It's going to be pulling it straight down, which means that we've got to have more muscles in the bank, back, mm -hmm. that are going to get tired and achy. And so sitting up straight, and keeping ourselves balanced correctly is going to allow the body to sit longer, but eventually it's going to be time to move. But this is not a kind of a freezing meditation, this is very much a dynamic uh, way of, of living our lives. So, um, let's go into the concept of the other one, of being able to sit there while the, the back is hurting. Um, though it's not recommended to sit there and have the back hurt, some teachers say, oh, well, you have to watch, you have to understand the body by watching that place where the pain is. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's many kinds of little insights that we can get for doing that. One of them is to recognize that you can't quite pinpoint exactly where the pain is. But intellectually, we can understand the way the nerve systems operate, uh, it, there's not going to be one nerve cell that is screaming at the very top of its lungs at 100%. No, it's going to be a whole group of these guys that are singing a song together. And mm -hmm. so if you look at that point, you're going to see it's over here. And if you look at that point, it's over here. So you begin to understand that actually that painful sensation that I'm looking at begins to move around. It's not stuck in any one particular place. The next thing that we begin to notice is, is that, hey, if I can watch it and pay attention to it, I can also completely ignore it and go and pay attention to something else. So in meditation, I refer to this as the opposite of hide-and-go-seek. First, we go seek it out. We look for it. We look. We notice it. 
and then we ignore it. We throw it out. I've got something better to do than to look at that sensation. Then later I might come back with body scanning or whatever and get back to that sensation at a later time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, um, let's, uh, rather than backache, let's look at something else because this is also quite common, and that is uh, animal bites, uh, mosquito bites, uh, ants. We're, we live in the tropics, and, and there are mosquitoes uh, to be dealt with um, at least twice a day. In fact, that's one of the ways that a lot of people wake up in Thailand. They wake up with mosquito bites. It's, uh, you know, sunrise and, uh, and whatnot. And then in the evening at sunset, there's a lot of mosquitoes. So uh, normally what happens with Westerners when they come to Thailand and they experience the mosquitoes, they scratch them. They scratch the bite. If there's a mosquito here, they scratch here. If a mosquito bite is here, they scratch here. And they're not even paying too much attention to what they're doing. This can even happen in meditation for the students to just sit there and then scratch. This is mindless. This is actually out of the reptilian brain and the, uh, the mind hates that itch so much, the uh, reptilian part of the mind, that it's there scratching and clawing at it, uh, making some changes. But generally, especially if you've got fingernails, you're actually disturbing the entire area, the entire skin. It's better for mosquito bites to not mess with them, to leave them alone. That mm-hmm. there are, are in fact some cases that we know of that people have died from a mosquito bite. Why? Because they won't leave it alone. They won't let it heal. They keep scratching and messing with it and playing with it and it gets infected and then they really start clawing at it and it hurts more and more. And then they have to uh, uh, if, they, if they're lucky, can get some medical attention, otherwise they're going to die. There's a very famous guy that did this, by the way, and it gave um, uh, uh, some interesting results. I forget the guy's name, but he was the, uh, the archaeologist that opened uh, Tuknot Amun's uh, grave. And then within a few months, he got a mosquito bite that got infected and he died from it. And this is now the idea that mummies have curses. Very fun. Wow. Okay. So much for scratching mosquito bites. What we need is we need to have the presence of mind of knowing that the bite is there without scratching it. That in fact, the attitude is, I'm bigger than that mosquito bite. The attitude is, let's let that heal by itself, be friendly with it, to where the reptilian brain is wanting to claw at it, trying to get rid of it. It hates that feeling of the mosquito bite. The other way that we can do it is we can take on the championship of, I'm strong enough to deal with that. that that's nothing. That's just a little pain. When we carry it far enough, we get into the battle scene at the bridge in the movie of uh, uh, the Holy Grail, where our knights are trying to cross the bridge, and here's this knight saying, no, I'm the guardian of this bridge, and you can't come across. And so they have a battle. And the first thing that happens is that guard gets his arm cut off. 
and he's never mind. Let's fight. And he picks up the uh, the sword in his left hand, and so they cut his left arm off. And so, never mind. Let's fight. So they whack his legs, and now he's just a stump. And as he watches them cross the bridge, he says, "Come back and fight like a man." Now, while this is really funny in a uh, in a movie setting, it really gives us the attitude. Yeah, we can have that lion's position. We do not have to come to defeat. And yet, as children, we were raised to be in defeat. The example of that is every time that a child gets called down or punished or whatever, he has been put back into the victim's position. Mm-hmm. That we don't train our children very, very rarely. Sometimes children are, in fact, raised uh, to be a champion. And they're very rare, and they're often quite famous. Uh, Alexander the Great would be one of them that was, and the, uh, uh, I forget his name now, uh, the, the Spartan who did the 300 thing at uh, Thinopolis. Mm-hmm. You know, the Battle of the 300, when he was a kid, they, they put him out there, you got to go get that snow lion, man, you're only 10 years old, here's your spear, you go get it. Okay. So they trained the kids to be warriors. They trained them to be champions. But in our culture, we don't train kids to be champions. Mm-hmm. We may teach them a little martial arts, but they, they even when we're teaching little kids martial arts, we're not teaching the child to be a champion. We're teaching him to be a victim. And our culture is set up in this victimhood. There's actually some deep psychological reasons for that. This is not magic. This is actually eventful. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. And that is is that uh, the example I use is a, is a kid with a crayon writing on the wall. And he's there drawing and he's got some nice art. You know, he's a four-year-old. and He's got crayons and he's drawing on the wall and he's really enjoying himself. And then mom comes in. And she don't like it a bit that he's drawing on the wall. And she makes a big deal out of it. He might get a spanking or she makes him clean it or she cleans it with him or whatever like that. Now, when that kid grows up, what's he most likely going to remember? The 10 minutes that he had enjoying writing on the wall or the fact that he got caught and he got punished? Right? We're going to remember the bad times. We don't remember the good times. We because we have tens of thousands of good times. They're not memorable at all. But a few bad times, we're going to remember them. And the reason for that is because of the self-preservation instinct. That that moment when mommy came in to catch uh, the kid drawing on the wall, this was a moment of terror. This is a moment of danger. Writing on the wall was a lot of fun. Who cares? I don't remember that. But now this moment of danger is there. And we remember that. When you understand that most of what we remember is the crap that happened in our life and we don't remember all the good times. That's one of the reasons to stay out of the past is because that's where all we keep all our crap. <laughs> and so the uh, mucking around in the past is a kind of a hindrance because it generally winds up as in, in us feeling bad because we're thinking about the past. But this present moment is generally quite good. There's nothing wrong with right now. It's great. 
So let's spend our time and our thoughts thinking about right now, which is pretty good, rather than thinking about the past, which is generally pretty crappy. Not because our past was crappy, it's because we remember the crappy parts. And so when we begin to noting, we want to note that hindrance so that we can come right out of it. Mm. As opposed to noting the hindrance and then staying in it and noting it some more. primary teaching of the Buddha is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. You probably heard that phrase. That's what the Buddha says. That's the only thing he teaches. And when you understand it that way, you can begin to see, well, the teaching of the Buddha actually, even though in some cases and ways, it's deep and it's profound. Once we go to that uh, profound understanding of how the mind works. We can be, we can understand it's really very simple. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Mm-hmm. And yet most students when they practice meditation, they practice it in the way of Dukkha. I see the Dukkha. I note the Dukkha. I recognize the Dukkha. Now I'm getting some insights into the Dukkha. Now I'm going deep and I'm really getting some deep insights and I really understand the nature of Dukkha, right? but they're still in Dukkha. Mm-hmm. And they think that that's insights. Insights into the nature of suffering means I've got to suffer. But the Buddha is saying, no, that's not the way we practice. It's not Dukkha, Dukkha, insight into Dukkha, more Dukkha, deep Dukkha, deep insight into deep Dukkha. It's not the practice. The practice is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Get out of it. So when we're saying that, we it's like, Aha, I see you, Myra. Aha, I see you, Dukkha. Out. Get out. Cool. Yeah, I actually, I do have to head off soon. It's quite late here. Okay. So, um, to finish up with this, then, we, we're making the point that we have to understand the hindrances only to the point to get out of them. Mm-hmm. And yet this stuff is our nature. Our nature because it's our habit. And our habit is over and over and over again dwelling in the suffering that we've been trained into. So now we're going through a new training. And the new training is to get out of the past, get out of the suffering, come to this present moment, and enjoy the shellac out of it. Mm-hmm. Just to be here now. Taking a deep breath, oh, this is so nice. And that is a major change in attitude. The attitude from being a victim who suffers into the attitude of the lion who is bigger than that mosquito bite. I can handle that. Yeah, I guess, like, the thing I'm getting is, like, sort of being friendly with all those hindrances, like, allowing them in, inviting them versus resisting. And, like... Not inviting them in, inviting them out. Mm-hmm. In a friendly okay. way. <laughs> inviting, out you go, yeah, right, see you later. <laughs> cool, I really like that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, little Billy, your mommy's coming. You uh, calling you? You go home now. <laughs> so this is the way we do it. This is the important point. Whenever, so your job mainly in the beginning is to see the hindrance and push them out. Okay. And start spending your time in this present moment. And then the back while you're watching the breath will go into the background. But it doesn't matter whether they're in the background or not. In fact, there's no such thing as the background. Mm -hmm. What it is is a mind moment. And so we'll spend a mind moment on the breathing, then a mind moment of thinking, and then a mind moment on the breathing, and then mind moment on the thinking. And we think mm -hmm. that the thoughts are in the background. They're not in the background. They're right there. There they are. <laughs> and because of that, that too is something that needs to be monitored. So that the, even the thoughts while we're watching the breath are wholesome thoughts associated with the breath rather than letting the mind wander away. So this is the second kind of control. The first control was just to wake up and start watching the breath. And to now we're going to make sure that uh, we're controlling the thoughts enough so that they don't pull us away. <laughs> and so that's the way that we practice. We practice with throwing the hindrances out. They'll come right back. We're watching the breath, and the hindrances are still there. Right. Throw them out. Aha, I see that. I can come back and think about my breathing. I can think about the body. I can think about this here now. I can think about what's going on now. And I'm not going to think about what's not happening right now. And so we begin to control the mind. We begin to think only the thoughts that are wholesome thoughts, and we're not going to allow the hindrances or unwholesome thoughts to come in. And so this is the way that we begin to practice so that we can get into that state of here now and kind of maintain it, staying in the here now. So you practice that a little bit and call me back, and we'll continue on from there. Will do. Thank you so much. I, I feel like I'm learning more just talking with you than, you know, a couple of years of reading. <laughs> That's how the Dhamma is transmitted. That's, in fact, the way to learn carpentry. If you really want to be a first-class, top-notch quality carpenter, you've got to go live with a top-quality, first-class carpenter, and he's going to teach you all of his tricks. Mm-hmm. But you cannot learn to be a carpenter by reading a book. <laughs> Very true. Now, an excellent carpenter can learn extra tricks from a book. I'm mm -hmm. not saying that the book is completely useless. But we need a teacher, too. Yeah, it makes sense. I don't know of anybody who's ever learned how to play a musical instrument without a teacher. Even those who say that they play by ear and they've never had a teacher. That's bullshit. They didn't mm -hmm. even know what a guitar was until they saw somebody playing it, and there their teacher is, right there. We can't, yeah. we can't learn music without a teacher. So I don't understand how people think that they can learn Dhamma without a teacher. The answer is, well, we got no teachers around. The only thing we got is books. Mm -hmm. So let's get some teachers out there. Got a yeah. job waiting for you. <laughs>
Okay, Cole. Well, let's finish this one, and we'll see you later in the next couple of days. Sounds great. Thanks so much. Okay. Have a good day. All righty. Bye-bye.